Welcome to the latest episode of Through the Lens of Christ, a podcast that Steve Douster and I um, put together. So, Steve, hello. How are you? I'm fine, Adam. How are you today? I'm great. Good, I'm, I'm great. Um, so I'm Adam Baker, and we uh, we come together to have these conversations about um, often uh, current events, things that are happening in the world. We've spent some time recently talking about the political landscape and trying to dissect that. Everything that we desire to talk about is how do we better understand um, our lives in this world, in this fallen place, as fallen people, um, and see everything that's happening around us as part of this redemption story. And so how do we see things through the lens of Christ rather than just through the lens of how does it impact me and why am I upset, disconnected, disjointed, any of those things. So our desire is that we just engage in good, healthy conversation about uh, things that are happening. And today... We have a special episode. Um, so Ashley, who is always with us, even when you may not notice she's with us, she um, is our producer on this and does a great job of making us sound somewhat coherent. Um, but she's actually going to be asking us a couple questions. So we've asked for questions that um, just might be stirring on, on your heart and mind. Um, somebody submitted a few questions, and none of them are simple. So you're going to hear less of me and a whole lot of Steve, mm-hmm. and we're <laughs> we're going to uh, we're going to navigate these. But Ash is going to be asking these questions and telling us where we're uh, failing to actually answer a question. So um, the one the one thing that I would like to say before we start this with Q and A's, and especially with these questions, um, we are having these conversations as Steve and I both, while while we're fairly settled on some of these things these aren't things that we consider to be salvific, right? They're not things that I would say, if I misunderstand this, I can't be saved. Rather, we would say, we should absolutely desire to know some of these things, especially the first things we're going to talk about, because it helps give us a fuller understanding of who God is and how he works and how he operates. And I think both of our views are going to, we'll have a lot of differences, but where the views line up is that we see God as this great, loving, awesome, sovereign God. And the more that we understand who he is, the more I think we understand the depths of his love for us and puts us in a position to desire to serve him even more. Um, So, our, our hope in these conversations is not that you would walk away just taking whatever it is we say as now I have to believe that, but that you would engage in study and understanding and that you would engage in, in scripture, that you would engage in finding articles, books, whatever it is to help you wrestle through these things as well, because the wrestling is important. And so we need to um, wrestle through some of these topics. And we'll also talk about places that you know, some of these things scripture doesn't necessarily answer for us. And so we're going to talk about um, what do we do with that when that happens as well. So having said all of that, anything else to add, Steve? Nope. Sounds like a plan. I think we should get going and see right. how it goes here. I like it. Ashley? <laughs> all right. Question number one is, if God has foreordained everything, then how could we have free will? Yeah. So... um just, is it okay if we just do like 20 minutes of silence? We just do like a <laughs> long pause. Um, so we've we've got lots to say on this. So I, I want to um, frame up a little bit on this in terms of what, what we're going to talk about is really two wills. Um, and the idea, and again, this is where we get into some controversial things and where um, we're not telling you what you have to believe. Rather, we're inciting you um, to study and to understand how the how the Spirit is teaching you. Um, there's many schools of thought on all of this, the three largest ones being Calvinism, Armenianism, and then Molinism is probably lesser known, but is, is probably the third largest one out of these groupings. All of them trying to help us to understand how God works. And so we're going to be talking through 
um, the aspect of how God works and how does free will operate and even hopefully resolve some misconceptions that within a Calvinistic or Reformed view that free will doesn't exist. So we're going to talk about the idea of um, God's revealed will, um, things that he actually explicitly states, also known as uh, commands or decrees, um, things that we would consider to be violable. So things that would be we are able to violate those things as people. Um, and then we're also going to talk about his hidden will or his secret will, will um, things that would be inviolable, meaning that God owns and operates these things. And th- those are things that we cannot violate because they would be against the very character of God um, and would make us sovereign and not God. So um, so I want to frame up those two pieces as we talk about this, because this is an important conversation and consideration on the idea of free will. So now I'm going to stop. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, now keep on going. This is working out pretty well. So, so yeah, one of the things I think of when, when you talk about those two things are, you know, the Bible seems to say one thing, and then it seems to say a contradictory thing to that one thing. Mm-hmm. And so we start off from a position of we trust all of the Bible and we want to be faithful to it, um, not only you know from some theoretical vantage point, but also because and if we really do believe the Bible is God's word, we want to believe and trust all of it. And, and as the Bible is so reliable in, in life, just understanding the world around us, understanding ourselves, it's, it's so clear and so helpful in those areas. It must, it, that's a reason why it must also be true in other areas. And, and we don't want to cross out one thing to save something else. We want to be biblical. We also don't want to bring, you know, philosophical ideas to Scripture. We want Scripture, something outside of ourselves that God has, the only thing we can see, really, um, to define that for us. And then we bring it to ourselves, our culture, our society, our environment, and let it define us and help us. Yes, and we and if you're if you're really interested in being super theologically nerdy, so that Steve's talking about we exegete the text, meaning that we allow the text to speak for itself rather than eisegete, meaning that we we bring ourselves into the text. Yes, and when we talk about canceling out scripture, we're talking about abrogating or that we we cancel out portions of the text, which essentially means that some of scripture can't be. Uh, inspired, which means that none of it's inspired, and then we get down this really horrible rabbit trail. So, well, you get situations where you know who's going to say one thing about something else, and where do you stop, and where do you start, and all of a sudden, scripture is meaningless, which is yes. what you just said. Exactly. So we have to. So uh, Steve's point that is perfectly stated is that we have to start with an understanding that scripture is true. Correct. And we, even if you would say, well, I don't know if Scripture is true or not, then you're believing something else to be foundationally true, whether you think it or not. We have to have a baseline of truth, whether that's culture and the world and what I've been taught or whether that's Scripture. Yep. And while I don't understand all of Scripture, I would much rather stand on a foundation of God's Word than man's attempts at what culture should look like. And if I could do one more thing, yeah. it's okay to say I don't know. Mm, yes. <laughs> right, and, yep. and and rather than throw something out that the Bible says, um, we're trying to reconcile that. And if we can't, we sometimes have to let a couple different, seemingly contradictory things stand until either we can work them out, or till we see Jesus and He tells us and works it out for us. Yes, yeah. and a, a scripture on that that I just want to read while we get started is Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. Uh, it says, "The secret things belong to the Lord our God." But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. 
And so that's that really starts to frame up this idea of God's two wills, the idea that there's there are hidden things, that there are mysteries in Scripture that we will never understand. There are secrets that, and and again, if you have a high enough view of God, you go, thank God for that. Yes. I'm, I'm thankful that God does not fit into my brain or into the structure of my thoughts. So that's one. So there's hidden things that we'll just never know that should not cause us to shy away from talking about them, but we should be able to go, I'm not God, and there's things I don't understand. And then conversely, all the things that are revealed in Scripture, there's a lot of things we can start to debate on, on these hidden things, and there's a lot of things that are revealed clearly in Scripture that we choose to ignore. Mm -hmm. And so if we spent more time saying, God has clearly revealed and commanded certain things to me that I'm violating often, I need to focus on actually doing that before I start to let my faith be deterred by hidden things that I don't fully understand. So one more thing is that the, all those things that you're just talking about, that makes the importance of conversation all the more important because we start doing things in our own heads and we can get pretty pretty rabbit-holed and really squirreled up. So it's really a problem. So we, we start doing thinking wrongly, applying things, discounting things. We need conversations about these things so that we can focus on Christ with spiritual eyes together as a family and a community. Otherwise, we're just a mess. Yes. So we've had several minutes of frame up and trying because it, I think the frame up is really important as we get into these conversations. I agree. Um, but now, now that now that we're there, we can avoid this no longer, Steve. Yeah, so it's all as, good. as we talk about this, can uh, I'm going to do this, mm-hmm. Ashley? Can yes. you reread the question? I would love to. If God has foreordained everything, then how could we have free will? Great. So within that question is, the, and I'm going to assume some things in the the questioner's mindset but the, this idea of free will becomes that when we say that God foreordains things that he has foreordained every detail of everything and we're just kind of puppets and he's the great puppet master and free will means that I I make decisions and I live my life contrary to anything God does and there's these like two extreme polar thoughts right that either either free will exists and I have full control or free will doesn't exist and God has full control um, the, the question assumes both of those things, right? right. It's, it, the question assumes that God is sovereign over all things and also that man has free will. And I don't have any of those defined from the questioner, but there are lots of definitions for both of those. Yes. Yes. So as we talk about the idea of free will, I, I think mm-hmm. I want to provide some guide rails, at least the way I think about it. And Steve can jump in and um, um, mm-hmm. push back. So, But the the idea that, that we live... Um, when we talked about uh, hidden will or God's kind of inviolable things, right, we're really going to be talking about the revealed side, the things where we have uh, authority and reign when we talk about free will. There's certain things that I'm I'm accountable to the things that I do and the decisions that I make in the day-in, day-out areas of life. And I... I can operate opposed to God's will in those things. So God may desire that I turn left down the road and I choose to go right. And that is not something where God's going to go, hey, you violated my will. You now cease to exist, right? I have free will within that concern. Now, I'm not talking salvation. I'm just talking will, right, that I, I actually can make choices. and and. But the idea that we're self-determining, mm-hmm. meaning that... I can now choose for myself whether I'm going to heaven or not becomes a different matter than just can I make choices within some some construct of free will? Can I make choices and live my life? Or can I determine if I'm saved? Um, sure. So you're going to kind of split that in different ways. I, I, I kind of get that. What, uh, 
how to start on that. So, so, so fr free will can be defined a few different ways. Mm -hmm. That's 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 part of the challenge. So, so understanding how that works together is going to be important. Um, it, you know, are we actually self-determining salvifically, or is there any other part of us that's self that's self-determining? Either when even right now that we're sitting here and having this conversation. So, so the way I understand our will, I also won't say free will because I don't think. I think our wills are always constrained in some fashion. Um, they're constrained at least by who we are as people, um, created in the image of God, if you want to believe that, or, or just people in general. We have restraints, so we're not really free. I can't go swimming under the ocean um, for any length of time without drowning, so I'm not very free there. Even if I want to really badly, it just doesn't work. So I'm not designed in that way. So, so I have design limitations, which also limits my willingness and ability to do the things that I want to do. Um, I also have desire limitations. So I desire different things, and those desires, in my, in my understanding, drive my will. So, so if I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll go the the two biggest blocks of people, lost and saved, like the Christians and unbelievers, believers and unbelievers. If I'm an unbeliever, every action that I take is a willing, willed action of myself that's actually driven by a desire. And the Bible teaches that that desire that I have is always sinful. It's always sinful and always malaligned. As a believer in Christ, I also operate according to desires. And, and I believe foundationally when I'm saved, when the Holy Spirit changes my heart so that I can see clearly, my desires are changed at that moment as well. And so then my will comes out in a will that's different. So it's not like a robot kind of a situation or a puppet on a string. Um, I mean, maybe I'm jumping ahead too quickly. My understanding of salvation and man's will is that my, the limitations are put in me by God, and, and the, the freest I'm going to be within those limitations is as a believer to where I can act in accordance with my maker's design. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's the way the will works in my understanding. If we want to talk about free will, I don't think man actually has that self-determined free will or some sort of ultimate free will. He can do whatever he wants because he just flat can't. If there's any free will in the universe, it's God's will. God is the freest being ever. He can do whatever he wants, anytime he wants, with no limitations or constraints. He's free, we're not. Right. That's yeah, where we'd I would say start. That we, if we have free will, we have free will, but God's will is freer, right? He, he, he always sure. sits above whatever level of free will we might have. Yeah, no matter how you define it, because there's other ways to define free will where that where we want to, we want I think, uh -huh, you know, intellectually to assign ourselves. Um, the ability to make choices that are valuable and important, right? Because that's that's certainly in Scripture. The question is, is that outside of what God has for us in some way? Can we can we get God in a corner, in a bind, and, and do something that he doesn't approve of in some way? Um, yes and no. Sure. Yes, yes and no. Yes and no. A very decisive. Very exactly. That's a decisive thing. Um, but I, so I, I would like to... Um, just okay. explore a little bit on this one point where the idea of, of choice, right? Yes. Because we do choose what we desire. And I think that that even goes into this concept of, uh, if we're talking from a salvation perspective, we choose what we desire. So um, talking a minute about the idea of being saved, mm -hmm. but to your point that once we actually see 
Christ. And and the converse of seeing Christ is also seeing our sin, right? So we yes. see the depth of our lostness and we our separation from Christ and also the beauty of our Savior. Mm-hmm. When we see those two things, we now, we have this desire. So sometimes from a Calvinistic perspective, the thought that we don't choose Christ, right? That we, that mm-hmm. God does all the work in its salvation. I, I, my argument, and I think most most would agree that when you're talking about that's not actually true, right? Because we do still have a choice. Yes. It's just that we now see what would be termed irresistible grace, but we now see this beauty, amazing uh, perspective of who God is and who Christ is and our sin and who we are. Why would I choose anything else? Right. This this idea that if, if I'm even built in a way that I would desire what is best for me, that my desires, even even from a even if I'm self pleasuring in some way, like if I'm I'm self worshiping and just desiring what is what I think is best for me. Mm-hmm. Once I see the beauty of Christ, that is still always what's best for me. Right. So so the the event is the opening of the eyes, mm-hmm. the softening of the heart, the the new heart being installed in us, the stony heart taking away the heart of flesh coming in. When that happens, now I can see, and because I can see, I'm able to do what I was des- what I was designed to do by God and I can worship Christ. Before that happens, um, I can't do that and I can't I can't remove those scales or change out my own heart. Somehow that has to happen from outside of myself. You know, an, an alternative, if we could take it all an, an Arminian al- or alternative would be that I can that I can somehow get to a place that that that, that God's resourceful. He knows what's happening and he can make things happen outside of me, but he chooses not to control my my will in some fashion and let me lets me be autonomous in some way that I can get to a place where I can make a dis, an unencumbered decision um, that that it's not biased in any way I can see clearly enough to self choose or reject him right Re- accept or reject him and and my counter to that would be now we're all in the metaphysical philosophical end here so far mm-hmm. but I which I guess I have to apologize for but 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 can can anyone ever get to that position of of unencumbered not swayed by some outside force situation and make that kind of choice I mean I don't think that ever happens we never pray that way we don't believe it actually happens all of us come to the table with baggage uh, with different things going on and biases and, and I don't think it's possible to actually reach that kind of decision. So if you want to call it, well, God pushes me over the edge or puts me in a situation where I would end up choosing him, okay, that sounds a lot like what I believe. Opening the eyes of the heart. (laughs) Opening the eyes of the heart, exactly, and not something that I've done in a self-determined way that's generated from within. Yes. I don't think that happens. No, and I think, and and to take a step back a, a little bit further, as we're talking about kind of these different schools of thought, one thing for me that, um, becomes helpful in the way that I think through things is, one, what brings God the most glory as we're wrestling through difficult topics and things? It's like, okay, what brings God the most glory and what allows him the most sovereignty? And so if I come up with a decision on my my belief structure that allows me to be in control and has God responding to my choices, Mm -hmm. that means I'm sovereign, not God. And that that is where I, I continually push back on even my own belief system to go, does that put me in the driver's seat or does it leave God in the driver's seat? And what you're talking about is that I can either choose to say, like, I'm the one who's opening up my own eyes to see, or I can believe the truth of Scripture, which says we have scales that can only be removed by the Spirit's work. That puts the that puts God back in the driver's seat. Well, that's right. So you're you're taking, but but your basis for making that evaluation is more of a Calvinistic basis, an Arminian basis. I think would be more like 
no, I understand that, but but God has created free beings that he mm-hmm. he wants to have love him freely and independently and for who he is already, and to for him to do something to that person to get them to come to him would violate that, would violate that spirit of that person, and God doesn't have it that way. So, so what they want to protect is that our choices and our independence is meaningful, mm-hmm. and, and our personhood is meaningful to God, and therefore he doesn't want to coerce or make that happen himself. It has to come kind of naturally or from that person, mm-hmm. and they're protecting that rather than kind of the glory side that you talk about. I actually, I, I brought a piece of paper with me. So, so my, my go-to article on this, when you, when you mentioned this as a possible topic this morning, <laughs> my, my, my mind went to, to an article that John Piper wrote um, a long time ago, and it's called, Are There Two Wills in God? Divine Election and God's Desire for All to be Saved. And it's a pretty long and semi-heavy article, but there are two paragraphs that kind of go right to this point, if, if I could just read from it, that's, that's, that's okay. So so here's here's Piper talking about this very subject. It's, it's a pretty extended little deal. It will take about two minutes, I think. He says, this seems right to me, and it can be illustrated by reflecting on 1 Timothy 2.4, where Paul says that God wills all persons to be saved. What are we to say of the fact that God wills something that does, that in fact does not happen? Because not all people, this is me talking, right. not all people are saved. So he wills one thing, but yet it doesn't come to pass. So this is the problem that we have. We see this seeming discrepancy in Scripture. Otherwise we end up in universalism. That's right. that's right. So if we want to if we want to believe in universalism, we have a whole other discussion here. So we're, we're not going down that no, path tonight, I hope. There. Yeah, thank you. Um, so... What, so there are two possibilities as far as I can see. This is Piper talking again. One is that there's a power in the universe greater than God's which is frustrating him by overruling what he wills. Neither Calvinist nor Arminian affirms this. You know, this is not something that's widely believed, right? The other possibility, though, is that God wills not to save all even though he's willing to save all because there is something else that he wills more which would be lost if he exerted his sovereign power to save all. This is the solution that I, as a Calvinist, affirm along with Arminians. There is something that's important to God he's trying to protect. In other words, both Calvinists and Arminians affirm two wills in God's when they ponder 1 Timothy 2.4. Both can say that God wills for all to be saved, but then when queried why all are not saved, both Calvinist and Arminian answer that God is committed to something even more valuable than saving all. And here's the big, here's the point. The difference between Calvinists and Arminians lies not in whether there are two wills in God, they both actually believe it, but in what they say this higher commitment is. What does God will more than saving all? The answer given by Arminians is that human self-determination and the possible resulting love relationship with God are more valuable than saving all people by sovereign, efficacious grace. The answer given by Calvinists is that the greater value is the manifestation of the full range of God's glory in wrath and mercy, Romans 9, 22-23, and the humbling of man so that he enjoys giving all credit to God for his salvation, 1 Corinthians 1, 29. This is utterly crucial to see. This is what you were saying just a moment ago. This is utterly crucial to see, for what it implies is that 1 Timothy 2.4 does not settle the momentous issue of God's higher commitment, which restrains him from saving all. There is no mention here of free will, nor is there mention of sovereign, prevenient, efficacious grace. 
If all we had was this text, we could only guess what restrains God from saving all. When free will is found in this verse, it is a philosophical, metaphysical assumption, not an exegetical conclusion, going back to what you said earlier. The assumption is that if God wills in one sense for all to be saved, then he cannot in another sense that, o- that only he cannot in another sense will that only some be saved. That assumption is not in the text, nor is it demanded by logic, nor is it taught from the rest of Scripture. Therefore, 1 Timothy 2.4 does not settle the issue. It creates it. We have to look somewhere else to find the solution. I know that was long, but that, that's yep. right along the lines yep. of what you were mentioning. Yes. Yeah, and I think, and that's, those are the points that we have to wrestle through. We do. Right? Is how do you take, how do you take a statement in Scripture that says that, that appears to say that God wants to save everybody. Yes. Right? So how do we take that and acknowledge that not everybody's saved? And regardless of what side of the free will debate you sit on, you still have to wrestle through that statement unless you end up universalistic, which is correct. heretical. So, but the, the idea that we would, how do we then understand this topic of free will and foreordination? And so I'll, I'll ask the question this way. Um, Steve, do you think that God has that every detail of everything you do, God has written in history, or do you believe that he gives you some level of uh, decision-making rights in your day and day out life? I think he, I think he ordains every single thing that I do. Mm-hmm. I think every single thing. I, I think he ordains everything to the just nth degree, mm-hmm. every little particle, everything that happens, because there are things that... There are things that he, he's working within me and he's working outside of me. And all those things are for my good and for his glory. And I don't, under, and I don't understand any of those. I don't understand yeah. it, but I do yeah. believe that's the case. I don't, yeah. I don't see in Scripture where he talks much about you know, man's freedom apart from himself. Yeah. Um, not, 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 yep. not really in, in the yep. large vision of Scripture that we see. Um, he does a lot of talking about how in control he is, mm-hmm. not how in control we are. Um, I don't think that's. I don't. What do you What do you think about that? Are you Are you there too, or are you somewhere yeah. else? I wonder. I'm probably I'm probably partially there. I think if I'm there, um, we can see it when we look back, right? So when we yeah. when we march down the road and we think we're making all these choices and decisions and we're operating in our own, what we believe to be our own will and logic. And we look back and we can see how God was ordaining all those steps to bring us to a place, mm-hmm. right? My, my, my challenges become, there's a lot of scripture that talk about, we need to worry about how we live, right? Sure. We need to make sure that we are, uh, we just talked about it in first Peter where he says, there's a war waging within us. Don't give in to your sinful desires. Well, mm-hmm. So uh, my, I challenge the, why would he, why would scripture send, spend so much time saying, follow after my will if we were going to follow after his will. So I think there's some, again, you're talking from a philosophical perspective that I, it doesn't change the salvation matter. Right. It just merely changes now that we're saved and we begin to live a certain way. Has he ordained all those things or is he telling us to stay in my will? I mean, we even, uh, Romans 8, where he talks about how he, he works all things, mm-hmm. right? So we know that, I read that to be that even when we see horrible things happen in this world, he still is redeeming all of those things. Well, so, oh, good, yeah. No, go. Yeah, so so even even those things though, I think he's ordained because he's 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 put them in our place, suffering and difficulty and all that, because he's changing us by them. 
Um, so, so we take a step and we find out that God ordained the placement of that step af- after we've done it. Yes. But we do have to act. But, I, but, I, but our acting, in my mind, is because of desire. Our desires cause us to act. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, I, yeah, I'm not going to say we don't have to do things. We have to do things, but they're coming from a desire. And if we have a right desire, um, those things will go one way. If we have a wrong, a wrong desire, God still uses them, and our life yes. goes a different direction. Yes. Um, even though, you know, we do them, and we don't see what, we don't understand how God's playing in it. But look, you know, I agree, looking back, we, we see it. Yes. And when we get to heaven, we'll understand all of it at some point. Yeah, because, I mean, that those two paths, whatever side of the hair you end up on, it, it still becomes a conversation that God is sovereign. Whether he has right. ordained every step and that we are doing all of those things, or we're saying that he's redeeming every step and even the poor choices that we make, God is still the one who's sovereign and in control, working out what we would consider to be his hidden will, mm-hmm. those things that are ultimately his choice and decision. One other way to think of it this way is all the promises of God are true, and, and as we work into our lives, they're becoming more true. God's, God's working all those things out for our good and his glory. Um, and the future, the, the, the promises of Scripture will come to pass and are acting them out in real time by sinning and not sinning, even as believers, um, ensures they're going to pass the way that God has ordained them. Correct. Yes. Work, again, um, working all things for his glory, mm-hmm. right? That... Um, and I, I think that's an important piece for us to understand at a, it's good for us to dig into the details and try to wrestle through some of these topics because candidly, I think they're really interesting. And I think they we are. should desire to know, we'll never know how God fully operates. And as we talked about his hidden will, and we don't fully understand those things, but to know more, I think should be driving us every day. Well, I think so too. And a lot of these things kind of play into how we evangelize, how we talk to people and just how we see our world around us. Is God really in control of all these things or is Satan you know, really fighting against God, and sometimes, you know, Satan gets the upper hand, and, some, and God bounces back and, and pummels him and all this yeah. kind of stuff. You know, I, I don't see that as the case at all. That, that, just, yeah. uh, that just doesn't happen. Um, nor do I see the case as the case when we're talking to someone and evangelizing them that this responsibility for awakening them to, to the things of God are our responsibility. So I, I have a desire that others would be saved, and I have a will to that end, and so I act toward that end, and then it's up to God for the results, not up to, up to me. But praise God, it is because otherwise it would be terrible. Every time I would fail, I would be like, I just, I just committed that somebody person to hell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because of my because of my weakness and my my sinfulness. Right. Yeah, um, I mean, he tells us that we're his ambassadors, right? That yes. we're the ambassadors, and that we should be declaring that people be reconciled to God. He does not say that we should be the ones reconciling people to God, or that we're responsible for their salvation. Right. But we are responsible for being the advertisement for who Christ is, and understanding that we're we're not opening people's hearts. That is God's work, but he is allowing us to participate in this in some way, which should be a privilege to us. His power and his spirit work through us. It's not ours. It's not our power. It's not our spirit. So we're vessels and and he works through us to accomplish his purposes. Yeah. So we don't, it doesn't absolve us of duty. Correct. But it it also frees that you were talking that I live my freest when I'm in Christ, when I'm the slave to God, I live at the freest I'll ever live. Yes. The idea that my desire would be that other people would know the joy that I have because of Christ. So now my desire is to go have these uncomfortable conversations with people, but I'm freed up in knowing that it doesn't rest on my shoulders to save people. Yes. Yep. For sure.
Okay. Did we I just think, answer one question? I think you <laughs> did. We're we're gonna be here. While. I feel good about that. Kind of. Yeah. Well, I feel like the second question is kind of tied up in what we just talked about. What what was what's the next question? Question number two is: If God has already determined that I will love Him, is it really love? And so I I not that I want to shortchange this answer, um, but I think some of what we talked about um, aligns to what this question. And so the idea that that just because you get back to this Arminian versus Calvinistic thing where does God desire that I prove out my love? Is, is that bringing him the most glory by me having free will to determine my love for him? Or is it that he's saying that you're my child and I open up your the eyes of your heart and I can now see what I most love, which is his son and his love for me? And do I respond out of that place? And so I, I don't think that that one destroys the other. I don't think that we can say that because there's a predestination or foreordination that I can't love God. Basically what I'm saying is is that he opened my eyes. Now I can see. Now I can purely love. And so I'm still responding out of that love. He's not forcing me to love. He's just showing me something that is fully lovable. And I'm saying, there it is. Can I ask another question on that? Mm -hmm. So, Steve, you said that God has ordained every choice and every step that you make. So if he's already ordaining those, are you choosing to love him if he's already decided that you're going to? Well, I'll try to answer that. I, so so I think it, I think a lost, someone that does not know Christ, that's eyes have not been opened, you know, lost person, doesn't know what love is. So we, if, we, if we're talking of some monolithic definition of what love is, I think that's really not the case. God has, God is love, and he, in his love is defined by him. Man's love is defined by man. It's a different love altogether. It's incompatible, um, and it aims at the wrong things. So I don't know if I'm going to answer your question very well, but I'm going to try. Um, so, so when we're saved, our desires are changed. We understand God's love in a whole, a whole new way. We see it for the first time, and we respond to it um, in kind with, with a love that the Holy Spirit has shown us in our hearts uh, that we are to be like, and we are like that. But I'm not sure they answered your question. Did it Did it help any at all? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is why I don't have a microphone. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just, no, it's good. Um, I, I mean, it, it goes back to that, do we have free will or not then? If, mm-hmm. if he's deciding that we love him, like if Adam told me, I'm going to tell you right now that you have to love me, but I don't, there, I don't have an well, option in that. Some sort of coerced love, right. right? Well, that goes back. That goes back to my uh, my idea and my understanding of the nature of man being made in God's image, um, yet fallen. So, so that we have certain abilities and capabilities that are designed into us that we can't. We have no control over those. That I can't. I cannot fly like an eagle. I might want to really badly, but I, if I you know, if I jump off a cliff, it ain't gonna work. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I have limitations physically, and I also have limitations spiritually, and 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 so I I I have the ability to do the things that I'm um, that I'm capable of doing only when I have been have been changed by God to see what I really am, to see Him, and now I can fully function as a human. I think you said something like that, Adam, mm-hmm. and I can love Him and I can respond to Him properly. Before that, I can't because of my fallen nature, because every part of me has been corrupted. So it's more of the capability to love him rather than the choice to love him. 
Right. And, and well, and when we see him and are changed by him, I naturally respond to him that way because I was made, this is what I was created for, is for worship. So I was, I was created for that function, that ability, and that capability to worship him. And I can't until my eyes have been opened and I can see. And then once I have actually seen, I naturally do that. It's not a forced thing then because this is this is what I've des- I'm designed to do. It's what I will by choice, by desire, and then I put it into practice, even though I do it imperfectly because other things get in the way. But yeah, so it's not forced. It's natural. It's 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 like a bird flying in the air or a fish swimming in the water. It's me worshiping God because that's what I was created to do. Yeah, and I think that's where we see in Scripture that we uh, Paul says in First Corinthians that you know, the gospel is it's either the power of God to those who are being saved or it's the um, I can't remember exactly his words, but basically the stench of death to those who's, who are mm-hmm. perishing. And so that's the point is that he doesn't force us to love him. It's just that. Um, God is love. So if once we see, how would we choose anything else? Yes. And so I think that's the, we're not coerced into it. It's just, we've actually been shown what perfect love is. So now we choose that. Right. And so I I think that's where some people get it wrong, where it's like, you know, he's forcing us to love him. No, he's just actually showing us who he is. And I desire to love that because God is love. Right. Right. Yeah, there's a misconception, I think, of Calvinists that God forces them to love him, that it's, a, it's actually, you know, it's against our will, but he does it anyway, yeah. um, and that we're puppets on a string, all those things. I think, they're, I think those are unfair misconceptions, um, but, but we have unfair misconceptions, too, of the other yes. side. Yes. So. And some of what you're talking about goes into what we'd call double predestination, um, which is that, you know, God, God is forcing people to hell, which is another misconception mm-hmm. from a Calvinistic point of view. Because again, you're, you're then assuming that God is responsible for evil and you're assuming that God is responsible for uh, sin and the price that needs to be paid, but he's forcing that onto somebody else. And, you know, in, in reality, we come back to this idea that they can't see the beauty of God. They don't, but yet they, it's not that there's not, um, the ability to love God, it's that they don't have the capability, right? You've got, he's still there. It's just that they can't see. Right. Which brings up a little, another point too, that I think people, we oftentimes want to completely divorce God from evil. Yeah. All right. And, and, and I don't think we can completely divorce God. We can't. Scripture clearly doesn't do it. Um, right. You know, I mean, I can think of one verse as what. You know, where is the what is it? Where is there not evil that God hasn't done it, or some kind of a thing like that? So yeah. there, I mean, you can see in the Bible where there is there are places where um, God is involved in some fashion in things that we would call evil. Yet they're not evil because He's doing it, and He's doing it for His own good, hidden will, perhaps purposes, mm-hmm. and and making His His will come to fruition through that. I don't know if this is the verse you're thinking of, but Isaiah 45, 5 and 7. Isaiah 45 is really good for all of this, but these couple of verses. um, It says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Yeah, I don't think it's, right. it's I don't think it's the exact first, okay. but it, it fits <laughs> it the fits, bill. Right? Yeah, exactly. I bring disaster. Doesn't that sound like evil to you? It, yes. I, yep. Is disaster evil? I think it. Well, it, if it's it not, is. if if 
um, if God is everything and evil sits outside of God, then God ceases to be everything, right? So sure. the 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 technical definition of evil is really an absence of God, right? It's us not following after his will. It's us not um, desiring him. It's us desiring self. Mm-hmm. And so evil is is really our own desire against following after him. So. Yeah. Um, can I make one more comment on this? And I'm sure we got to kind of move on a little bit. But, you know, in the Piper article, there are two quick sentences I'll mention. Um, and this is just com- it's common sense, but we forget these things. One, he says, you know, get, you know, God willing one thing and allowing another thing to come to pass. And how does that work? God's emotional life is infinitely complex beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Therefore, there's, there's, he's got some words in between there. So dot, dot, dot. Therefore, we should not stumble over the fact that God does and does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Right. So so <laughs> that first sentence, his emotional life is infinitely complex, complicated. I mean, ours is too. I mean, we can we can ordain difficult things and for a good end and yeah. so much more God in a, in a much bigger scale. Yes. Well, we we have traveled quite a road and probably didn't get nearly as far as we would like to. We've got other questions that we want to answer. I think we're going to save those for a different episode. Um, but this, hope, hopefully, um, this both agitated you and um, hopefully created some sense of understanding who, who God is and the fact that this loving God cares for us and that he operates so far outside of our realm of ability to understand that that shouldn't frighten us to, to not try to understand, but it should draw us more deeply into understanding how God works and who he is because this is the God who created us and this is the God who loves us and this is the God that calls us to him and sent his son so that he would die. You think about things that that God wills but also has a, has a hidden will and a revealed will. He sent his son to die on the cross. He sent his son to be murdered, ordained the murder of his own son, which he decrees murder is evil. So how do all those things play into place? There has to be a, a God's hidden will that this is serving out his purposes that we don't fully understand. And while it violates this, this decreed will, it does not mean that his hidden will is not greater than that. And so we just have to start understanding that God is operating on a plane that is not ours, but that he is a good God that deserves our honor, glory, and praise and our desire to understand him better. Right. Even through our fallenness, he made a way to redeem us. So the the love he has for us and the value he places on us because we're made in his image, um, he was such that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins that we might be saved. Good conversation. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Alex.